week one of the NFL season, the Ryan Rosillo Podcast, part of the Ringer Podcast Network. Brought to you by our presenting sponsor, State Farm. Getting great car and home insurance from State Farm at a surprisingly great rate. That's like drafting a player that becomes an all-pro. The real deal. State Farm agents provide personalized service so you can customize your insurance to fit your needs. Like a GM putting together their very own roster. You need a team that supports you, and State Farm's got a great one. In addition to agents, the award-winning mobile app helps manage coverage and pay your bills and file claims and more with a great price and even greater service. State Farm goes from strength to strength. Choose insurance that's always bringing its A-game when you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And who wants some Bacardi, yo? This episode is brought to you by Bacardi Spice Rum. Looking to spice up your game day plans? Check out Bacardi Spice Rum for a new take on your favorite old classics like a Bacardi Spice Rum and Coke. A um, lot of guys go rum and Coke. Why not make it a Bacardi? Why not change the entire game up? You know? Hey, Bacardi, too. Yeah. Would you like to be known as Bacardi Kyle? We could test it out for this episode. Yeah, we'll test it out. Yeah, go. Well, we can't go. Just do a home home deal. We'll see if we can't get you some product, Kyle, and you get you report back to us. Thanks. Bacardi, do what moves you. Drink responsibly. Bacardi USA, Coral Gables, Florida. Rum with natural flavors and spices. 35% alcohol by volume. The plan. Trent Dilfer. Almost an hour with Trent Dilfer. We're going to talk about Brady, his debut, the Saints team that I kind of love. Um, what else? What else? A ton of different stuff. The issues with Dak. What is golf? Carson Wentz, disastrous performance. Um, that was brutal. So we have a bunch of stuff that we want to get to. And then I'm going to touch on, uh, I'm going to do this. I'm not quite sure how it's going to come out, but I'm going to do it at the end, maybe with one life advice. But I need to talk about what happened with Toronto Raptors fans um, over about a 24, 48 hour period. And it's actually not stopping. And it's, um, it's probably the grossest thing that's ever happened to me as far as, uh, my career. And so I didn't really want to tweet about it. I didn't know how to address it, but I'm going to address it at some point a little bit later on. But if we get the music going, I want to introduce to you something we're going to do every single week because no one loves NFL awards like you people do. So instead of waiting for the quarter awards, the halfway awards, why not give out awards after the first week? And then they're kind of my awards. So it's award seasons early. We're going to get it. We're going to get the jump on everybody else. And we start with the Mitch Trubisky Game of the Week Award. That goes to Mitch Trubisky, who started 4-10 against the Lions, 59 yards. He had that dig route on that, I think it was a fourth down, where everybody immediately was like, ah, Mitch, this guy sucks. Like, how did he beat out Foles? Now, remember, a lot of people said you got to start Mitch you can't start Foles and then go back to Mitch because then he's not going to be any good. Well, that's kind of the whole reason Foles is there would have been the starter in the first place. So I never really buy into that. Like the whole, you have to start with this guy because if you don't start with him, you lose him for the rest of the season. I don't know. If that's really where you're at, head game wide, then you're never going to be any good anyway in the first place. But three touchdowns in the fourth quarter, okay? So now everybody's like, wait a minute. I thought this guy was terrible. Now, granted, yeah, DeAndre Swift dropped one in the end that would have been a game winner for Detroit. And Matthew Stafford continues kind of in his weird Matthew Stafford career. I think it's all going to be over after Stafford retires. We're all just going to shrug and go, all right, what the hell just happened there? Like, it never worked ever. Um, but with Mitch, this is probably the worst thing that could happen to Bears fans because all the bad stuff is still there. And the good stuff is fun. And a win is a win. It's great to be 1-0. You beat a division rival. But it feels a little bit like a missed call from an ex-girlfriend that mistakenly dialed you. And you're like, oh, wait, you know that deal where 
somebody would be like, well, do you still like me? Like, you know what, dude? It's crazy. I don't even like her, bro. I don't, I don't even care. Like, I'm like that. Like, I'm not even. I mean, she called. What does she want to talk about? What if she showed up right now and said, I want you back? What would you do? Nothing, dude. She's outside. Is she? So that's what this Mitch thing feels a little bit like, but that's our first winner. And it's fitting that the first winner of the Mitch Trubisky uh, Game of the Week award goes to Mitch Trubisky. Okay, the Bill Belichick, Tom Brady power rankings officially have come in after week one. I have Bill Belichick ranked one. I have Tom Brady right behind him at number two. And the reason is because Bill won and Tom didn't. Now... I'm being very sarcastic with all of this because I'm going to update it all season long because here's the thing. Think about what this conversation really means. And real people that I respect have had this conversation about what it means for Bill, what it means for Tom. Um, if you're going to rule out 20 years of evidence that Bill's probably the greatest coach of all time and that Tom's arguably the greatest quarterback of all time, but yet that's somehow those 20 years, like, okay, thanks for those 20 years, but now in 2020 at age 43 for Brady, again, that stat only seven Games have been started in NFL history by a quarterback age 43 or older. Only seven. So if Brady plays a full season, he'll have doubled that record just by himself. 16 games. But if you're going to say, well, you know, let's see what this Tom Brady guy is really all about. That would be like talking about McDonald's. Say if you were on one of the financial shows. And yes, granted, maybe McDonald's has up and down years. The market is more competitive. We all know that, right? A lot of burger places out there. But if McDonald's ended up having like a, a really bad run and somebody went on TV and said, you know, this McDonald's thing, I always kind of thought it was a little, a little iffy. You're like, did you, did you, where have you been for 70 years? Like you just, you were, you were that ahead of it that for 70 years, like, ah, I was kind of knew this was coming. So if Brady, like, I don't know, goes eight, eight, misses the playoffs, you're going to have people that actually go, oh, you know, really really was Bill. So what you're also saying is that Tom would have protected his legacy by retiring and never exposing this, the, the fact that maybe Bill's really pretty good or if Bill were to have a bad year because it's still possible, although they were never tanking, would it mean, you know, if it weren't for Tom, look, they're both great. They're both really great. And to say that the, the previous 20 years don't really matter for these two guys is insane. Next award. The Dan Orlovsky is going to lose his shit on Get Up Award. That goes to Dan Orlovsky, because Philly and Carson Wentz, his guy, Philly up 17-0 on Washington. It is the worst loss of the entire week. Um, teams that were up 17 points in 2019, their record was 224 wins, seven losses, one tie. And out of all of those games, no teams that lost actually lost by double digits after being up 17 Washington won a game where their average yards per play was 3.4 yards per play, and they won by 10. In 2019, um, if you averaged less than 3.5 yards per play, those teams went 0-18, 0-18, and, and they lost by an average of 20 points. Wentz, 15 possessions against pressure. He was sacked eight times. Six incompletions, one completion. They were a total of negative 52 yards against those 15 pressures, and he had zero throwaways, okay? The Eagles had 13 yards in the fourth quarter. This is not making fun of Dan Orlovsky. It's just that he will most likely lose his shit, so he wins the Dan Orlovsky is going to lose his shit on Get Up Award. And finally, 
We can very easily lose track of this. I will do it this year. Scores that happened this week, and then we look back, we start looking at a team's resume after seven or eight games. You're like, hey, that team, you know, they were pretty close there. That was that was a good game. And if you look back on it, you may say the Packers and Vikings, 43-34, you know, just wasn't a one-possession game, but it was under 10. No, it wasn't. Um, that game wins the fake podcast rankings, fake downloads of the week award. Goes to the Green Bay Packers and Minnesota Vikings. Green Bay was up 29 to 10. They were dominant. Aaron Rodgers was on fire. Minnesota was actually terrible. I think Kirk Cousins had completed two passes at halftime. And then they had, I don't know, 24 points in the fourth quarter there from the Vikings. So that will be a misleading one. So don't ever let you or any of your friends, your favorite talk show host, or least favorite talk show host say, you know, whatever. You know, Minnesota's played really well against the good teams. Uh, no, they didn't. They got they got trounced in that one. So those are our week one awards. Okay, before Trent Dilfer joins us here in just a minute, this season's going to look a little different, as we already know. Many fans won't be watching the stadium or bars, but from home. If you're a cord cutter or don't have some special sports package, that means resorting to streaming football through some sketchy illegal streaming site. Fortunately, Miller Lite has an idea on how to bring the game to everyone. So get this, Miller Lite actually trolled fans looking for illegal streams to watch last night's game by creating a bunch of streaming lookalike sites that fooled people into thinking they were watching the actual game. These fake sites turned out to be an insane ad for something called the Miller Lite Cantenna. It's a real can of Miller Lite with a digital TV antenna so people can watch football games with their friends. Uh, by the way, they sent me the can. And uh what they did? Yeah, they sent me the can and a oh, buddy so cool. and a buddy drank it. I'm just kidding. Um I I, I guess I could send out a picture of it a little bit later. The buddy part was the joke. Yeah, the buddy the buddy did not drink it. <laughs> it actually would be sort of dangerous to drink when the antenna is uh fully extended. So why would Miller Lite do this? Because even though football season might look a little different this year, Miller Lite wants to bring fans together in a new way. The easy-to-use digital TV antenna does more than bring fans in the game. It creates more time for Miller time because when you aren't focused on finding illegal streams or worrying about your bank account being hacked, you can just be yourself with friends. Wow, man. Miller Lite's really putting their arm around you right here. There you go. The Miller Lite cantenna. Stop clicking around and start watching football with friends because when it's game time, it's Miller time. If you want to try to grab one of these for yourself, go to MillerLiteCantenna.com to enter for your chance to watch high-definition football on a beer. No purchase necessary. Starts 9-11-20, ends October 12th. 2020 at 11:59 p.m. Central Time must be legal resident of the 50 United States and DC 21 years of age or older. Cantenas are only available to residents of Colorado, DC, Florida, Idaho, Louisiana, Mississippi, Nevada, um Nebraska, New York, North Carolina, South Carolina, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. Void where prohibited. See official rules at MillerLightCantenna.com. Actually, I would go check it out because it was really weird. When I opened it, I was like, what is going on here? And you can find all that stuff out for your entry instructions, the prizes, restrictions, etc. Let's talk with Trent Dilfer. Okay, week one. We are almost done and joining me throughout the season. We're going to look at it, you know, we'll figure out the daily's uh, Super Bowl winner and a colleague and a guy I consider a friend is Trent Dilfer. Okay, Trent, let's uh, let's break down what we saw in the first week. We have our notes. We've gone back and forth. I want to start with the Brady and the Saints game just because it was Brady. We wanted to see how it was going to look, how it was going to be different. I have my thoughts, but I defer to you. We know they lost. I think the Saints are really good. But what did you see, at least in their approach, the stuff they were doing there with Tom in a new system now for the first time in a while? Yeah, kind of what I expected. You know, Bruce Arians is historically the most aggressive guy. And say him and Mike Martz are two guys in the last 30 years that 
are the most aggressive with the vertical passing game. Um, that was going to be new for Tom. I thought it would invigorate him, energize him. Um, but at the same time, there, there's risk that comes with that type of style that Tom hasn't been a part of uh, for his entire career. So there's going to be an adjustment period there. They also haven't got a ton of reps on it. I, I mean, every conversation we have has to be in the context of COVID spring, no OTAs, no summer workouts, hard to get on the same page with guys, limited padded practices, shorter training camp, no preseason games. So you take all that and now you take a higher risk passing game and there's going to be some hiccups. I, I could see this for three to four weeks being hit or miss. Uh, in the vertical passing game. Um, it but it was definitely up. there, right? I mean, like, I'm not imagining things that I saw more shots down the field. Way more and shots. design. Right. Okay. And that- there's, gonna, and there's only going to be more. Um, I mean, I, I listened to some stuff last night. I listened to, so, to some stuff this morning on my way in. Um, guys saying his arm can't do it or he's not the same guy uh, from a throwing standpoint. That's not true. He can do all the stuff. I really think he has to um, – I think he has to bring more Tom Brady to Bruce Arians than have Bruce Arians influence Tom Brady. I think that's probably the easiest way to say it. You, you will get these shots naturally if you're a surgeon playing and play out. Like Tom has always worked up, meaning he'll go low to high. Uh, Bruce is a work high to low guy. There's nothing wrong with um, – Nothing wrong with Tom putting his fingerprint on this and getting some cheap completions on first down, moving the chains, waiting patiently for the shot to come because he's got the dudes to get downfield. They'll eventually get downfield. I, I, first of all, I'm not going to panic on anything for four weeks. Even when there was a preseason, I wasn't a guy that freaked out of the first four weeks. I thought it was an extended preseason. Now with no preseason, I don't think there's going to be anything we see in the first four weeks you can like – stamp it and say that's going to be this team for the rest of the year the other interesting thing about tommy's been the beneficiary of one of the greatest head coaches of all time that believes in building a program around three phases and each phase complementing each other that's never been bruce's mo uh, bruce has been a you know an offensive first guy tries to be an aggressive defensive coordinator in the years they've struggled on special teams so uh, the NFL is a true three-phase game. I, I think the Bucs need to become that type of team if Tom's going to have any type of success in terms of the wins and losses. Offensive line held up enough for you in that game? Because yeah. I know that was one of the concerns. Well, one of the concerns is this. When you're a vertical passing team, you're holding the ball longer in the pocket. Um, so it, we judge these offense. I remember when the Steelers' offensive line used to be judged poorly because Ben was holding the ball for three and a half seconds. Well, is that the offensive line or is that Ben? Uh, and then Ben started getting the ball out faster, and all of a sudden that becomes one of the best offensive lines in football. Um, the quarterback running back part of offensive line play is just as important as the five guys blocking. So uh, it takes all seven, the one running back back, or the five guys blocking, and the quarterback to all be on the same page, have the same timing, to understand the schemes uh, the same. Once they do that, uh, then you're going to, then all of a sudden people go, wow, the Bucks offensive line is so good. Well, yeah, Tom's. Average throw, uh, catch and throw time is going to go from 2.85 to 2.4, where it historically was uh, with the Patriots. On the other side for the Saints, it's not like Breeze had some huge day. He only threw for 160. But uh, in a lot of these teams, you know, one of the weird things about the NFL we always have to remind ourselves of, not you necessarily as much, but like we'll look at these teams week one and get really excited, and you'll see all these weapons, and you realize like, hey, two or three of these guys are probably going to be missing by the time the year ends, or the teams oh. that we really like 
Uh, so it's almost like you become a new team two or three different times over the course of the season. And what we see this first month may not even matter just on injuries. But when I look at the Saints at least week one. Can you just put that on a loop, Ryan? What you just <laughs> said right there is put on a loop and everybody that talks to you or put it on your Twitter, just put that on a loop. It's not what you are now. It's what you are in week 12, 13, 14. And that's going to be totally different. There's just so team. many times when they'll be like, what happened? You're like, well, they're missing two of their interior offensive linemen. They're missing both their safeties. They're missing their number two wide receiver. They're like, the coach doesn't suck. The quarterback isn't a choke artist. Like, sometimes guys are just missing all of these guys. And granted, if this sounds like a defensive Matt Ryan, it's sort of low-key is. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, but when I watched the Saints yesterday, and the Taysom thing, whatever, I mean, it's just it's just a window-dressing thing, and, and I'm still kind of surprised by the fascination with him. But when I watched Latavius Murray carry the football, I always am like, man, I love that guy, um, even though it wasn't necessarily like nasty or any point. I'm not putting him in my Charlie Garner one handoff for my life category, which I loved watching Charlie run the football as much as anyone I've ever seen play running back. But Kamara, we know how what a stud he is. Deontay Harris, the 5'6 kid from Assumption, who's so small, but like you see him out in space with the ball, you're like, okay, there's something here. And then you go cook, obviously Thomas, maybe being the best receiver in the league. And then Emmanuel Sanders, who was quiet for a stretch and then closed strong. It feels like the saints have a lot of different body types and skill types to throw at you with this game. And that, if they stay healthy, I think is really scary because other times it's felt like they've been really limited after one or two options. Uh, 29 personnel groupings, Sean Payton threw on the field last year. Um, it's it, there's there's two ways of looking at offensive football. You have your player driven or your system driven. Um, system driven is we're going to run these plays. These people are going to line up every single time in these five spots, uh, and we're going to kind of let the defense dictate who gets the ball. And that, there's nothing wrong with that. It's been super successful for a lot of people. Then there's player driven, where you have these unique plays that we really don't care what the defense does. We're going to throw unique players on the field and get them matched up with uh, advantageous matchups. And that's how, kind of how Sean Payton looks at offensive football. Uh, it's very much how like Bill Walsh looked at offensive football back in the day. It's, okay, I have Jerry Rice early on. I'm going to put him over there on the right. He's going to be on the right all the time. Oh, then two, three years in, I'm going to motion him. He's going to be in the backfield. He's going to be in the slot. He's going to be left. He's going to be right. He's going to be six yards from the tackle. He's going to be 18 yards from the tackle. All of a sudden, he's stacked with Roger Craig together. And what you do is you create all these stressful situations for defense, and it allows you to get the ball to people. So instead of the defense saying, hey, we're going to play cloud on this side and take away A.J. Green, right? You're saying, no, you can play whatever coverage you want. We're going to smoke and mirror this thing to make sure A.J. Green touches the ball. Uh, that's Sean Payton's brilliance. There's probably there's six of those guys in the NFL right now that still believe it. And it, it, ironically, at the end of the year, those are the six typically have the best offenses and the most balanced offenses because it's also a way you can get to true balance. Um, and that's one thing Sean does a great job. And that's how he'll protect Drew in his older age, to be quite honest with you. A lot of screens. Uh, you're gonna, they're gonna find, and you saw this last night with the Rams. I'm all over the place, but it's all one big story. You saw this with McVay last night with the Rams. They threw a bunch of these little screens. They want their back to get the ball in space. They want the slot player to get the ball in space. You can throw screens to every person on the field now. Uh, Sean does the same thing. So if you want Taysom Hill to get a touch, a screen, the double pass late in the game, uh, a reverse. There's there's creative ways of doing it. You want Kamara to get isolated? Well, you can isolate him just eye back run game. But you can isolate him as a wide receiver, motion across the formation, making the safety come down. He runs an option route on the safety. So it takes more work. The preparation to this type of football is exponentially harder than the system-driven people. 
Um, but it's worth it because now you can dictate terms to the defense instead of the defense dictating terms to you. Okay, let's transition then into the Rams because Rams-Cowboys, for me, is is the game between two quarterbacks that I still don't know. I know this sounds nuts with Dak. Like, I don't know if he's amazing or just pretty good with weapons. Uh, Goff went from, oh, my God, I guess this guy. Like, I thought he was a bust to this guy's going to be incredible to – wait a minute, are they going to be replacing him here soon again? But when it's right, when it's play action, when they have a run game, the Rams offensive line on one website that I trust graded him out 31st in the league last season. And last year, or excuse me, last night, it was only really one sack. So if we start on the Rams side, because they got the win, what do you see in, I don't know if symmetry is the right, right word, but when they were showing some of the play action looks where a handoff was the same exact blocking downfield as some play action movement i'm thinking how did they without any preseason how are they this crisp already um which is really impressive considering everything you just talked about with the lack of prep well i think chris collinsworth might have called his best game i've heard in a long time last night they did a really good job teaching people about the rams and the subtle little adjustments they've made he talked about the offensive line play and how last year their wide zone was more of a stretch outside lateral um, type stretch zone, which has been successful for some people. But this year, it's a way more vertical stretch zone. And he showed two or three times where the offensive line is not just moving wide, but they're moving vertical at the same time. When you have that as your base run game, uh, the play action off of it is dirty. I mean, it is literally unstoppable because you're actually sometimes you're running passes and you're not telling your offensive line. It's what an RPO is. But in the NFL, these are move, pocket movement plays where you're teaching offensive linemen to stay on their tracks. So they're running they're running their tracks as if it's a run. And then Jared's putting the ball in the belly of the back, pulling up and getting the ball out quick before those offensive linemen get down the field too far. And then the variations off of it, the misdirection with the back, the tight formations. Uh, it looks really complicated, but it's very it's very simple in terms of getting it ready for the regular season. Uh, it's Mike Shanahan, uh, Kevin O'Connell coming back to the Rams, I think is one of the, there's going to be a few coaching changes this year. You got to keep your eye on. That's definitely one of them. Jack Del Rio is another one. These are fantastic coaches. They're also little blankies for their head coaches too. Like the baby blankie, they make them feel more comfortable. Sean knows he can give Kevin anything. Uh, and that they think the right, they think the same thoughts. There's some potico in the way they look at football. And then he knows that Kevin can kind of handle that behind the scenes and the thing's going to be run the way Sean wants it. He can go be the head coach. So I think there's a lot of elements to the Rams you saw last night that Chris pointed out uh, it's going to make them more dangerous. To answer your question about Jared, I think Jared's a really good quarterback. And I always struggle with this conversation because what are we comparing them to? Are, are we wanting Jared Goff and Dak Prescott to be Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Rodgers, Tom Brady, Drew Brees? If that's the, if that's the discussion, then no. I don't think he's any of those four. I think he is somewhere between seven and 15. And there's probably eight guys. You don't know where you put him in that seven to 15 ranking in the NFL. He's very talented. He's very tough. He's versatile. Uh, he's a good leader. Uh, he makes good decisions. He can throw it vertically, he can throw it short. He has better movement qualities than people think. Um, but when you say, gosh, my quarterback's not as good as your quarterback. Well, who's your quarterback? If your quarterback's Drew Brees, yeah, the guy that's saying Drew Brees is probably right. But you can win a lot of games and you can win a Super Bowl uh, without having Mahomes or Rodgers or Brady or Brees. 
Okay, so then let's take that discussion to Dak, because I would still think Dak is better. I, I feel like every, and again, we're week one here, so we're in love with all the names, because it feels like every team's so deep to start the season. But when I'm looking at all the names on Dallas, I'm like, what is their salary cap at? Because why does it seem like they have more dudes than everybody else? And yet, in classic Cowboys fashion, um, everybody thought Jason Garrett was the problem, and here we are again. So now Kellen Moore is getting crushed because of the same thing. Uh, it feels like Dak is really good, but maybe late there's just plays that you expect him to make that that haven't happened as consistently enough. And I, I'm still I'm still admitting with Dak every night I watch him, I go, I I know he's good, but I, I don't I don't know in our obsession of what he'll ultimately be. Like I don't know if he's ever going to be the guy that everybody hopes he's going to be one day. Yeah, I'll try to give a shorter answer. Dak, I think Dak has been at his best when the play caller does the things he does best. Instead of saying, you do everything, he does everything well, okay? But what he does best, and what he does best is when you use him as a threat in the run game. So when you have him and Ezekiel and a jet motion guy, you know, a fast guy going across the formation, and there's that misdirection quarterback caller run option type stuff, I call him quarterback driven runs because that's why you're calling them um, that when he's getting involved in the game that way, it makes Ezekiel's job easier. He plays better because his DNA as a quarterback has been also being a dude in the run game. So these kids start in high school and their, their identities are shaped in high school of what they are. Okay. And what Dak Prescott's always been is a very physical runner, not a run first guy, but a physical runner. He wants to run. Lamar Jackson wants to run. Carson Wentz, believe it or not, wants to run. There are guys that want to run. Josh Allen is a great example of this. Josh Allen's so physical. It's what he does super well. He wants to be involved in the run game. We're not talking 12 times. We're talking two, three times early in the game. When that happens, I think their offense goes better. He's also better as an action passer. He's better putting the ball in the belly, some type of play action, cut the field in half. He's super decisive when he does that. Uh, he, he's actually a very talented vertical passer, second layer, third layer passer, off play action. But he's a good drop back passer. So it, the danger is, okay, I'm going to call a bunch of drop backs because that's what looks good this week, when really you don't have to as a play caller. You can just focus 80% of your time on the things he does best. When you do that, Dak Prescott, I think, could be a top six, seven, eight guy in the league. I think he's super talented. The problem is that too often you see in these games, and unfortunately, some of them have been primetime games. They're always primetime games, by the way. Like every Monday. Yeah, it's like it's a primetime game that he has 26 dropbacks. And you're looking at going, he should have 10, 12. I mean, Matt Hasselback's one of my best friends. And was a very, 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 very good NFL quarterback. He was way better off action. And I used to just yell at Mike Holmgren when we call a drop back. No, call an action. Some kind of action pass. Matt's as good as anybody in football. Drop back, he's good. He's still really good, but he's not great. You know, let these guys do what they're great at. Um, and you're going to have more success with them. Speaking of Wentz, I think that's arguably the worst loss of any team on the schedule I, I really think it is um, there's all sorts of history that I already pointed out in the open of today the team's up double digits or up 17 to lose by double digits it just doesn't happen he was terrible late and it dawned on me last year it finally dawned on me last year and I don't know if I talked with you about it at some point maybe you would heard it where I felt like there's all these personnel people that I know the former quarterbacks 
that just will tell you like, man, as far as arm talent, there's, mm. there's like maybe one, two guys that are better than Wentz. And, and you fall so in love with it that it can blind you to the fact that he still is like this young cult that trusts his, his stuff too much. And we saw it against pressure. And it was, I kept, I kept wondering because I would watch him. And I don't think last year's the most fair diagnosis of who Wentz is once you looked at their personnel towards the end of the year because it was just a bunch of street free agents playing receivers. So that's not fair. But I would go, why is it that the guys that have played the position, why is it that the guys that have evaluated this position for their career, why is it that they all still love Wentz so much? And I realized, I'm like, I just think because he's still young and he's missed some games because of injury, there's not enough. There's not enough of an NFL resume for people to start getting on his case about the decision-making part of this. And the decision-making part of it against Washington, despite all the talent that's there, like this is not who he's supposed to be. And it's incredibly frustrating for, I think, those that still defend him. Yeah, so I think we've, I fall into this every offseason evaluating quarterbacks is um, you're watching tape, right? So you're watching just hours and hours of tape and there's the ooh and on ah the splash and oh wow yeah that guy's going to be able to play beyond the x's and o's meaning that the x's and o's break down his giftedness is going to get a get out of jail free card um and you do all that but then you go back and you watch critical downs and you go back and say okay it's third and seven up four on your own 38 what kind of decision does he make? And at the end of every evaluation process that kind of becomes the balancing act of uh, talent over production. Um, Carson is an interesting study. He he's wildly talented. He, he's a guy that definitely plays beyond the X's and O's and he's a human highlight film, uh, certain weeks, you know, pulling out a sack sidearm, ripping the ball 40 yards, rolling to his left, throwing it back deep post. Like he does stuff that only a handful of guys can do. And you'll always have the crowd that will defend that and say, that's worth it. Any mistake he makes is worth it because he can do that. Uh, and then you're going to finish eight and eight, nine and seven, 10 and six at best, um, because so much of this position is decision making. It's it's no longer um, schoolyard ball. It's, it's not throw out the balls and see who is the biggest, baddest, strongest dude. So much of it is decision making. So so much of his discernment. I mean, look at I mean, we just use Tom. Tom's the greatest that's ever lived, not the most talented that's ever lived. He'll be the first to tell you that he's beaten people with discernment. He's beaten people with decision making. He's beaten people with patience. Um, he's trusted the process of a game, a sixty-minute game. Uh, too many of these guys play each play like it's it's the standalone most important play they've ever played, and they have to make a play, otherwise it's a failure. Um, and you can't play this position that way anymore. And uh, there's too too many complex defensive schemes. There's too many things going on that they just beat you before the ball snap. Like there's a lot of times on third and nine, you're beat before the ball snap. They're going to overload your protection. They're going to double your hot receiver and you have no other answer. You dirt it. You run around, maybe try to make a guy miss, then throw it out of bounds and punt. I mean, that's the reality of this league. Um, so I think Carson still has a lot of growing to do. Now, I wouldn't give up on him by any stretch. I'm not giving up on him. I'm just simply saying that, like, this stuff needs to be better now. And it needs to be coached. I'll give Jim Zorn a lot of credit. He was the first coach in my career. I was seven years in the league. Uh, I was in Seattle. And, and Jim was a guy that played the position, played the position frenetically, right? If anybody remembers Jim Zorn playing for the Seattle Seahawks, he was a frenetic type guy. And he would tell us the mistakes that would get him in. He said, yeah, I'd make these splash plays and everybody ooh and ah, but I also fumbled too much and also forced too many balls and also 
put my offensive line in bad positions. So what he did with Matthew and I, as he trained us, was he trained us in practice. Like our, we had no drills. We're just like drop back and jumped over a cone or shuffled our feet or went over bags. It was noodles hitting us. It was medicine balls being thrown at us. It was him trying to strip the ball. It was having an offensive lineman back into us and bump us. It was big shields going in front of our face to create. And what I learned from him was you had to create chaos in practice to handle chaos in games. And I think there, that, that's been an art that's been lost in the NFL. I don't know if it's because of time schedules. I'm not an NFL coach, so I couldn't go through what the, the now the practice schedule is. But if I was, I would make time for at least 10 minutes every day, for Carson Wentz, 20 minutes every day, where you created chaotic situations in practice so that he could make better decisions in chaos during the games. So we're not to the point where we think Carson Wentz is just a nicer Jeff George. No, no, I, I don't think <laughs> I can't believe Rob Jeff. Um, <clears throat> Why is Jeff no, your guy? Think, Are you buddies I, with Jeff? I like Jeff a lot. We, he yeah. played with me in uh, Seattle when I tore my Achilles. He's a really good guy. Uh, Wait, so why did everybody not like him? Was he just too, when he was I younger? I think early in his career, he was very nonchalant. He, he didn't put in the time. He, was, he wasn't a pro. Uh, he became a pro late in his career, big time. But I think Jeff was one of those uh, prima donna high school, college kids that took that mantra in the NFL, and it took him a few years to, to shed that. Uh, and kind of learn the, the professionalism of the, of the position. No, I think Carson's a true pro. He's a tough guy. Again, I'll use that because that matters in the locker room. Like fans go, why does he keep saying tough guy? Cause it might be the most important thing uh, when you're playing that position is your mental and physical toughness and the respect that gives you in the locker room, the leash it gives you with your teammates. When you do turn it over three times, let a team come back against you that he'll show up this morning with his shoulders pulled back and have energy and get in that weight room and get after it, not sulk and, you know, bring energy to everybody else. Uh, no, I think, I think it's a training thing to be quite honest with you. I think Carson needs to train better in season in these chaotic situations. And these are all correctable mistakes. More with Trent Dilfer, including is there a, a James Harden at quarterback? Uh, and I'll explain that later in the interview, um, and we'll get his answer on that. The Ryan Rosillo Podcast is brought to you by FanDuel Sportsbook. By now, you've probably heard about FanDuel Sportsbook, world-class sports betting app. FanDuel makes it easy to find and place your bets. They've got some of the best odds you'll find anywhere, and they even get your winnings in as little as 24 hours. Real grown-up site here. That's a lot of reasons uh, to try FanDuel Sportsbook, but here's more. Right now, new users can place their first bet on FanDuel Sportsbook risk-free and get up to $1,000 back in site credit if you don't win, okay? I think when some of you guys listen to this stuff and you're listening, maybe it's in the background a little bit, pay attention, okay? No strings attached. Just place any bet you want. If you win, you keep the cash. If you lose, you'll get your entire bet up to $1,000 back in site credit. Did you hear what I just said? You could lose a grand, and then they go, okay, well, here's actually just credit towards betting more. I don't know what else to tell you other than that's an amazing deal. Okay, um, week ones are always a little tough. A lot of people, big comebacks in week two. Let's see. Uh, New England opened at plus three and a half at Seattle. I, everybody's going to hammer Seattle. So now I feel like I'm kind of going sucker bet here. That number is a little stinky at Seattle minus four against New England. But go ahead. Go ahead and lay the four. All right. Also, make sure to check out Football Double Up plus a pregame money line wager. And if your team scores 35 points, double your winnings. Max bonus $50 in site credit, one eligible wager per person. So, um, yeah, there you go. There's my double up pick there. Maybe you want to get that in now, or maybe you wait it out. I don't know. 
you tell me. The other number two, I was like, Baltimore, Houston, because everybody's probably going to bet Baltimore under seven at Houston because nobody likes Bill O'Brien. Um, shout out to Arizona. What a great win against San Francisco. We didn't even get to that with uh, with Trent here in this interview. So, you know, spared you on that one. Uh, there's another number here that everybody's going to bet. Oh, yeah, it's going to be um, Kansas City. The numbers already moved pretty significantly. Kansas City opened uh, as minus five and a half against the Chargers at the L.A. Chargers. And now it's early at eight, eight and a half um, here on Monday as of this taping. All right. So, look, if you're ready to bet on the NFL this football season, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and be sure to sign up with the promo code Ryan, R-Y-E-N, so they know that I sent you. That's FanDuel Sportsbook, promo code Ryan, R-Y-E-N. Must be 21 or older and present in New Jersey, PA, Illinois, West Virginia, Indiana, or Colorado. First online real money wager only. Site credit is non-withdrawable and expires in seven days. Restrictions apply. Gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in West Virginia. Visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. In Indiana, that's www.1800GAMBLER.net. In Indiana, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Or in Colorado, call 1-800-522-4700. Okay, let's talk Cam Newton, Pat's. Um, First of all, I think you and I are on the same page here, and our good friend Colin, who who loves this segment idea of the Pats tanking. Um, well, he Bill wasn't calling his players, telling him to opt out because of COVID, and that one week that got lost, and you're looking at the two deep, going, "Man, did they lose some names here?" And you kind of remind yourself as you're ramping up. The defense looked incredible. Yes, it was Ryan Fitzpatrick. Yes, it was the Dolphins. But just the pressure and the movement they were getting from their linebackers, I thought was really good. But if we look specifically at Cam, it's a uh, it's a very similar hybrid offense that we're used to seeing with Cam before. What did you see in at least the early ways that they used him? That's that's something you're going to keep thinking about as as they probably open it up a little bit more for him. Um, Josh McDaniels, uh, if people remember, go back to the Tim Tebow time in Denver. Um, Josh really understands this type of football. Uh, I'm not saying Cam is Tebow. I'm just saying the style of football. Um, there's a lot of fun to be had uh, with a quarterback that can throw it, uh, can beat you from the pocket, but also gives you a lot of other options. Um, your your critical situation football, your your short yardage, your tight red zone, uh, four minute things like that, um, it gives you a lot of rule breakers for the defense. Uh, and, and honestly, every every offensive coach loves to draw up stuff that the defense can't figure out. And when you're quarterback 6'5", 240, um, there's a lot of stuff you can do that is hard to defend. So uh, I think they're they're embracing this style of football. I thought that, again, watching that game closely yesterday, the announcers did a really nice job of explaining how it complements your special teams, it complements your defense. Uh, this is a defensive-centric team. It's a special team-centric team. Offense is really the third most important part of the New England Patriots right now. So you're going to call the game. You're going to create plays. You're going to you're going to highlight players uh, that complement what you're really trying to do, which is build the best defense in all of football. And and as Bill's always done in his career, destroy people in special teams. So um, I'm not surprised at all. It, it it's not going to be glamorous. Um, Where they're not even going to lead off Monday morning shows very often in a few weeks because. It's going to be the same thing. They're going to win 19-16. They're going to win 23-15. They're going to win 9-6 one of these weeks. You know what I mean? It's going to be that all over again. And then next thing you know, it's going to be another 10-plus win season for Bill Belichick. Um, there'll be a pain in the butt in the playoffs. 
Uh, and if they're as good as they can be defensively, now a lot of this has to do with attrition, as we talked about earlier, but if they stay healthy defensively, they can build the best defense in all football. I'm going to point out two plays, though, that I always I always look at like third and six, third and seven. Yep. And if you're not one of the studs, how does the staff um, like how do they what, what plays are they calling there? You know, are they letting you take the shot or do they not trust you? And it's my old Trubisky thing at moments last year where I'd go. They don't even trust him. Like they don't even trust him. They're throwing it out in the flats. You know, there, there's some sort of like little wheel route or some sort of cut by the running back up and in, hoping to get one on one with a linebacker. There was a third and six or seven, and, and Cam took a bad sack, took him out of field goal range, and then the next time they handed it off, and I thought, oh, I wonder, I wonder what that is. And we can say it's week one. We may, look, I'm admitting that maybe, but it's just always something I look for. And it's going to be something I'm going to keep paying attention to, like third and seven, third and nine. What's their tendency there with Cam? Now, if they feel great about slowing down the opponent, that's fine. But that was Miami, and it's not going to be that every single week. Yeah, I would I would want to know what happened on that situation in practice. My guess, um, because I was the guy at times I have a bad Thursday. They didn't trust me to take their all the ball in third and seven. You know, I mean, it's if you don't execute Thursday, you're you're third down and medium, your must pass day. Um, then they're not going to trust you in the game if you're a good quarterback. And and there's still there is a little bit of this. How much of the offenses Cam know? How much drop back have they done? Sure. How much per, how much protection change recognition have they done? Um, I mean, there's a bunch of that stuff that nobody really cares about. Um, but I think at the end of the day, I think you're going to be fine, punny. I, I honestly, Patriots fans are going to pull their hair out and look like me over time. But uh, this is going to be a team that's going to be fine punting the ball a lot that they're going to be fine um, protecting it, taking the air out of the ball, letting the other team have it, getting the ball back, play field position, capitalize on some opportunities. I think you'll see some trick plays. I think the number one thing you should write it down about the Patriots uh, right now, if you're a Patriots fan, is start charting how many trick plays they run here for the next six, seven, eight weeks. I could see being two, three a game. Um, you're going to see some of the – you're going to see Edelman, trying to get Edelman in space so he can run after the catch. You're going to trust that for your big plays. Uh, you're going to see your backs a little more involved in more of a college offense, misdirection, two backs in the backfield, a white Michelle, Cam, cross action, Baltimore Ravens stuff. Um, you're going to see you're going to see a lot of this Saturday looking football uh, that's conservative in the run game um, show up for the Patriots because that's what they want to be. And then as Cam gets more comfortable, I think what Cam has always done a really good job of as a passer is piercing you like he can rip it in that 15 to 25 yard area as well as anybody. I wouldn't call him a great deep ball thrower, but that second level getting the ball in tight windows, I think they'll start working on. Oh, There's a great example of the one they showed the end zone copy where he turns around, fakes ISO, turns his back to the defense, comes up. Edelman runs a little option route, takes inside option, gets about 18. It's a play they've been running forever there. You're going to see a lot of that two back power, uh, play action, you know, 15 to 25 yard stuff. And, th and that's what he's going to, that's what he does best. And again, goes back to this conversation to guys do best with Dak. They're still finding what Cam does best. And it would not surprise me one bit of Josh, this very second, as we're talking is going back and looking at Carolina Panthers, Cam Newton, MVP season stuff that he did best. He's probably calling Norv Turner and saying, Norv, when you coached him, what's he do best? And we want to put in stuff that he does best. The great thing about the Patriots, they don't have a system. So they don't have like a playbook that every year it's the same stuff. 
they're going to evolve. They're going to, they're going to be play driven. They're going to be people driven. Uh, Josh is going to find what Cam does best and, and do a lot of it. Okay, let's talk approach and, and changing things around because I think there were some jokes about Seattle and Pete Carroll. Pete Carroll in particular establishing the run for 27 years and the lead up for this year is they're going to let Russ loose. And I mean, that game he had against Atlanta yesterday, 31 to 35, 322, four touchdowns. They couldn't really run the ball and it didn't even matter. And look, Ryan had to let it fly all day. He actually threw for 450. But is there another level that Russ is going to get to that I'm not even sure? I, because I, I coming into the year, I think he's the second best quarterback in the league. Yeah, I, I always have him in my top four. I mean, when people make me do lists, which you know I hate, he's always either <laughs> one, two, three, or four. I demand um, to know where you have Stafford. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> After yesterday, um, <laughs> I uh, here's I'll just make this one really easy. Russell makes incredibly difficult things, things that those of us that have played it that go, wow, that, I mean, that's hard. That's really, really hard. He makes them look so easy. Uh, It's different than Aaron Rodgers and Patrick Mahomes, but it's the same. Those are the three that do. What's that mean? What's that mean? They make throws. Um, they feel things. They see things that I'll go back six, seven, eight times and watch and go, I have no idea how he saw that. None. I know the defense. I know the front. I know the protection change he made. I know his progression. I have no idea how he saw that. Oh, not only that, he saw it and his right foot was behind his left foot when he threw it. Or he had a free rusher coming from the field that he knew he was going to get hit by. But yet, There was total calmness. There was no flinch. There was no rush. Like he just kind of know that Steve Young, you say the spatial awareness, you know, knowing the space around you. And I would always look at Steve on camera and go, I don't know that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not familiar with what you're talking about, Steve. I guess you Hall of Famers have some spatial awareness thing that the rest of us didn't get, but that's what Hall of Famers do. They, They make, the incredibly difficult just look routine. And Russell does things that just look routine. And when you're a defensive coordinator preparing for him, okay, so you got to prepare for their quarterback run stuff, which they'll do. They showed true option yesterday, like true 1977 Oklahoma option. They showed all verticals, like spread you out and be four wides and run spread and go verticals. They show power eye. They showed about, eight different screens like they're that that catalog of offense is large and it's a lot to defend and then at any time you know you have dk metcalf out there who can run faster than anybody's bigger than everybody and the best deep ball throwing quarterback probably in the last 30 years you got to protect for the home run every time now they got lockett inside more and they ran a play in the first series where Lockett lines up the place. I haven't really seen him line up a lot. He's done it before, but not often. And he runs like the air raid little option route inside. And you're like, well, okay, now they're still on the air raid stuff and putting Lockett in there. So, um, it, it, again, it's first four weeks, but it would not surprise me if the Seahawks offense becomes one of these uh, hyper-explosive nuclear offenses. Okay. This is um, this has felt like something you were just excited to even do. You probably would have been happy if I led with this. But with all the Aaron Rodgers stuff the last couple of years, which, again, I, I don't think anybody can dismiss some of the numbers. Like, some of the stuff was alarming. Some of it was regressing. Uh, he put on an absolute show. 
against Minnesota, where that final score will end up, as I said earlier, being a misleading one. Weeks from now, people will say, oh, Minnesota was competitive. No, they weren't. Green Bay diced them up. Um, I don't want to say, hey, now is Aaron Rodgers back, but I guess I'll just let you take it in any direction that you want to go to. I don't even want to ask a question. I want you to talk about Aaron Rodgers the way you want to talk about him. Want to get the most out of Aaron Rodgers? Piss him off. Don't pour, don't pour sugar on him. I mean, he is, he's a guy where you have to be a psychologist. Uh, and I think the love drafting, I think how you coach him, I think it's all very strategic. Uh, I would have done the same thing and people would have hated me and blah, 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 blah. I'll do the same thing to my players I coach. If I think I can do something to get greatness out of somebody, I'm going to do it. And I think that's exactly what the Packers did. Um, you play that long, you're that successful, you have that many pelts on the wall, it gets boring. It gets non – you can become um, uh, complacent is the word I'm looking for. You can become complacent. And Aaron would never admit he's complacent. He would probably be pissed off of this interview. But the bottom line is that when you light a fire up his you-know-what, um, that, that's what you're going to get. And I wouldn't stop. I mean, somebody go talk to Joe Montana and Steve Young about how Bill Walsh coached them when they were winning MVPs and multiple Super Bowls. It's never enough. Always find Why do you think Steve Young came to the Niners? Has everybody asked himself that question when Joe Montana's at the top of his career? Because you have to do things like this to continue to pull greatness out of great. Uh, and I think what you saw yesterday is just the beginning uh, of what Aaron can do. Uh, he's got these young, talented receivers that a year to – work with they're very talented kids they're long they're fast uh, he's got his blankie and Devonte adams uh who's his really really good receiver and his comfort blankie all the time he can go to uh they're gonna run the football um they've done a nice job drafting offensive line which i always thought was their weakness everybody shows me his numbers how great the packers offensive line is and i watch them snap by snap i never thought they were that great now i think they're a lot better um, they're going to play three, three phases of football. That's what LaFleur did last year was he made sure this became a complete football team. So he's going to be supported in a Belichickian type way. Um, uh, if you, again, I week one, I could care less about, but preseason, you asked me top five teams in the NFL, I would have put the Packers in that because of all of these reasons. Wow. Okay. Cause I always felt like last year at 13 and three, I'm like, I don't know. I, I don't know if they're really that good and you know the way Rodgers framed it going into this season was like look they can draft Jordan Love and they can try to make these comparisons to my age and Brett Favre but Rodgers was right and that Brett had been flirting with this retirement thing forever and then flirted with it for like another four years and the team wasn't as good and he's like we're a game away from the Super Bowl I'm like yeah but I just didn't feel that way about the team you feel I'm just curious like how do you feel about last year's 13 and 3 team that I felt like was a little misleading because of record and final standing versus what you actually think they can do this year. I mean, it sounds like you think they're just a more complete team, no matter what going in when you were looking at the 2d. I didn't think they're, I mean, they're a 13, and three, 13, and three team, obviously, <laughs> but yeah, but I don't think a lot of us liked them that much. Yeah, weird. Did I. I think we did a couple shows last year. We're yeah. like, yeah, they're good, but nothing screams great, but they got a taste of how three phase football looks. Um, and they're going to get more of the quarterback. I mean, Aaron did not play great last year. He played really well. I mean, he, he's one of – I think he's one of the top five of all time. So I, I'm not saying he wasn't fantastic, but he wasn't dominant. He was You're right. I mean, I, there's no argument really against it. I mean, this stuff yeah. is there. I, I, so, so I can still I, like him. I think my narrative around the Packers is this, is what everybody's uh, paradigm of how the Packers handled all this 
comes from the media. That's the only way we can consume information, right? But there are people that know what goes on in those front offices. And it's very different than what the media tells us is happening. And I can guarantee you in those front offices, there's some wise people that said, I'm done with him just being good. We need him to be great again. How do we make him great? Well, we're so you think him. you think they drafted think Jordan Love on purpose to piss him off and make him better? Heck yeah. And you get a really talented player that needs two to three years to develop. Um, yeah, you do. You absolutely pull. You're a puppet master if you're running an NFL organization. If you're a head coach, you're absolutely a puppet master. And you're pulling the strings to get the most out of the people you have. And sometimes that hurts feelings. And sometimes that's not nice. Um, and that's okay. This is professional football and feelings really don't matter that much. And if you need to get the most from somebody, you do anything you possibly can to get the most from them. And I think all of that um, was very strategic. Look at Bill Belichick. He, dra- he drafts Garoppolo uh, when Brady's in the height of his career. I mean, all these guys, they're cut from the same cloth. They're assassins. Um, and it's, it's like college recruiting, right? You got a really good five-star kid you bring in to Oklahoma. Well, you know what you're doing? You're recruiting the class behind him behind him as soon as he signs on the dotted line now you go public that you're recruiting the five star from texas that's right behind the guy because you don't want the guy who just signed on the dotted line to get comfortable um you know you can't have there's no room for entitlement in the nfl there's no room for entitlement at lipscomb academy where i'm at uh entitlement kills football teams and i think what you continue to need to do as a leader of a football program is find a way to create competition to pull out the best in people if that takes hurting their feelings, then oh well, go grab some Kleenex. Um, but we're getting after this thing. Okay, I have two more things for you this week. I could watch Aaron Donald all night. I yep. find myself watching the center of the field way more when the Rams are playing. Um, and it's something I've definitely got better at. You know, you sit with enough players, you go stop watching the ball, stop watching the ball. It's a hard habit to break, but now I'm pretty good at not watching the ball, knowing that the ball, they're going to show me a replay where I can watch the ball anyway. But when it's the Rams, I don't ever want to watch anything except for Aaron Donald. I can't believe it exists. I can't believe somebody exists that disrupts the way he disrupts that continuously. That play where he comes off one block to his right and then smashes two other human beings that like are offensive linemen males and tosses them to the side and then cuts back and makes the play on the quarterback. It's just stupid. Um, I'm not saying he's the greatest defense player, but I just... Give me your story of a defensive player that disrupted things as much as or to like, I don't know if, if it's anybody that's even disrupted the way Donald has, but give me your guy. Well, Aaron's unique. And there's only one guy that was this unique that I played against. That was Johnny Randall and who really started the glory of the three technique. You know, the three technique became a glorified position because of Johnny Randall. There are other really good three techniques, but John Madden hadn't highlighted them yet. You know, really was John Madden pointing out how Johnny Randall was the most dominant player on the football team and he played defensive tackle. So I'd say that's the comparable. Now, you've had your saps and all these other guys that have come after Johnny that have been Hall of Fame players that Aaron's been able to look up to and say, I want to be like that. So you got to credit this, let's call them the six best in the past 20 years of these three techniques. I'd put Sapp and, and Johnny at the top of that list. Um Johnny plays every snap hard. Now, the most disruptive player in the history of defense, in my opinion, is Reggie White. Now, the difference is that he only played about 40 plays super hard. He conserved his energy. He would just, he could go 60% and still stop the run. 
Um, but people, before you jump on the Aaron Donald might be the best uh, inside uh, defensive player of all, all time, Reggie White, and talk to any offensive lineman from his generation, Reggie White was, he was a god out there. He was Thor. He was, I mean, he was, he was unhuman. He did things that it wasn't even based on effort. He, he was just supremely better than anybody on the field at all times. Uh, then you put your Deion Sanders as a corner. I would put him kind of that category too, where there's been a lot of great corners, but they'll all, they'll all tell you when Deion was healthy, just better again, unhuman um, out there. So uh, I, I'm the same way as you. Uh, I love watching interior play. When the Rams play, my eyes tend to be there most of the time. Uh, in fact, I missed some Dak, Dak Prescott stuff because uh, I was watching <laughs> Aaron. Um, I was afraid you're going to ask me, like, go over every Dak play. I'm like, I probably didn't see half of them because I'm watching the offensive defensive line. But uh, he, he's fantastic. He does, he does one thing that I don't know if I've – maybe Johnny did a little bit, but – his ability to have his, like his legs will be in one area and his body will be in the other area. And that's a really bad athletic position. And he somehow can move 350 pounds that way. So like his feet go one way and that's what they're tracking, but his body's staying opposite of feet and he's swimming and pushing and pulling and grabbing and getting up inside. And Johnny did a little bit of that, but I've never seen a, a body that can bend like that and still have the strength. And um, I, I don't know how often, so I'm a block. Should we have included Lawrence Taylor in this? Or <laughs> Yeah, but I didn't play against LT. You didn't play against I, him, right. No, yeah. I, mean, I only go against guys I played or studied hard. I've heard LT was just... I right. mean, okay, because yeah, I think I, that'd be the one other name, but I, I was pretty sure, despite the, the age joke that I can insert here, which I'm not going to do. Yeah, there's other guys people will put in this category. I just didn't play against them, so... Uh, or didn't study him. So I try not to talk about things I didn't experience. But um, yeah, I mean, obviously LT was was an animal. Okay, I have this longstanding theory about production in sports right now where we have pitchers that put up these huge numbers because all anybody wants to do is hit home runs and the defense behind them is advanced. And I remember arguing years and years ago, being like, I actually don't think we're in this golden age of like unlimited aces. I just think the game is different. Um, The same thing with basketball right now. Or if you look at like somebody at James Harden and everybody's arguing like how great he is offensively and you're like, yeah, I think this is all like skewed by 25% based on system and usage rate. And I really think the same thing is happening with quarterbacks where, you know, 300 yards used to be a nice game, you know, 20 for 30, a couple touchdowns, no picks, you know, threw it away at the right time. Good turn down 300 yards. You're like, now it's every single guy for the most part. Is there it's happening so i don't this i don't even think this is a theory it's a real thing we're seeing just different production levels because of the evolution of the game and math has something to do with that too but do you think there are moments where you have almost the quarterback james harden where it's like hey everybody kind of talks this guy up because they bring up his numbers but in reality like some of those real crunch time moments i don't know that i trust him as much as the numbers say that i'm supposed to it's a hard one because a lot of it's the play calling too. You know, I, I think you don't want to diss of, anybody. Is that what you're telling me? Well, no, I I don't have any friends anymore, and it doesn't matter. Um, <laughs> I'm your friend, uh, uh, I, I'm sensitive because two years ago I said without flinching, Kirk Cousins, like without a doubt, the number one number guy that doesn't have the substantive stuff to back it up would be Kurt. But then last year he was very substantive. He, yeah. he actually corrected a lot of the stuff that 
we were critical of him for. And I was actually a big fan of how Kirk grew as a player last year. And um, and when you're good at the deep ball like he is, it, yeah. it'll make us even more convinced that you're actually, you know, like, oh, my God, look at all this arm talent. Yep. I think that can help a lot of guys perception-wise. Matt Ryan falls into this, but I don't know if it's Matty Ice's fault. I, I mean, why are you calling so many pa- – I, I guess this is where it gets me is – balanced football is the hardest to defend and it's you score more points when you're balanced. So you're trying to score more points. You're not trying to get yards. You're trying to score points. Um, it's been proven that the more balanced you are, the more points you're going to score. So I don't know why these play callers fall so in love with calling pass after pass after pass. And at the end of the day, it's 48 passes. When really, if you get 65 plays in the game, I think ideally you're 33 run, 32 pass. Um, and I, you look at some of the great plays. Sean Payton's a great example of this. Even when Drew was rolling. Now, there's games you do have to throw 45, 50 times. The game dictates that. But you go back to the end of the year, and you want to be 55-45, 50-50. I think that's what makes Sean such a great play call over time is he's learned that, and that's how you get other players involved and that's how you score more points so part of it is the play caller's fault um I, I don't there's a lot of reasons you know people will bring up fantasy football they'll talk about let, limited practice time offensive line play isn't as good as you use or isn't as physical as it used to be these guys are coming from the college game the rules allow you to throw it more i agree with all that stuff and it is way easier to throw the ball but sometimes you have to like tom brady we talked about this at the beginning of the show discernment wins and when you can sit there's a play caller and say yeah it's first and 10 we're getting this great throw look however my runners only touched it seven times i got to be very cognizant of how many times my runner gets it i got to be cognizant of how many times mark schlereth you say this all the time how many times your offensive line doing this and how many times they're doing that pushing their the hands forward going back this, right the yep. more you're going to get out of them the more times you're doing that the less you're going to get out of them and it might just be that simple. If you're looking at how many times your offensive line is going forward or how yep. many times it's going backwards, maybe this isn't even a quarterback issue. Maybe this, it might just be a football issue. Is you want your bigs to be going this way because you add that up over 60 minutes and they're going this way enough, you're probably going to win the game. That's Trent Dilfer at Dilfer Dimes and more importantly, the head coach of Lipscomb Academy. Uh, the Mustangs, great gear, by the way, and in the win column this week. So I know that one meant a lot to you to get the uh, the yes. big win against Paige. Anxiety level way down this week. <laughs> hey, <laughs> thanks so much, man. We're going to do this again soon. Thanks, brother. Talk to you. Okay, Trent Dilfer joining us quite a bit this season. Missing a little thrill in your life right now? Look no further. Wireless is here, and it's available only on Quibi. It's a new streaming platform that offers fresh, original shows. I'm going to jump the script here and just share with you um, – I remember meeting with Quibi and it's a really, really cool concept, which, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the stuff that was going on, a lot of production things, creative things were held back. But essentially, it's smaller, shorter segment television shows. You're watching this stuff on your phone. And conceptually, I've always thought it's a terrific idea. All right. OK, back to wireless show on Quibi created and produced by Steven Soderberg. Uh, he did Haywire, Ocean's 13, bunch of other stuff. Big fan of his comes a survival thriller like no other set high in the Colorado mountains, high in the Colorado mountains. Dave. Nice. Follow college student Andy Braddock, played by Ty Sheridan, as he is stranded in a blizzard with nothing but his phone to keep him alive. Okay, I'm in. Experience this heart-pounding race against the clock from dual perspectives as you simultaneously watch what's happening to Andy in the real world and the events transpiring on Andy's phone. 
Download Quibi from the App Store now to watch wireless with your free two-week trial. That's Quibi, spelled Q-U-I-B-I. Give the people at Quibi a shout. They've probably paid a lot of your favorite content people to put some content out there. Okay, two things. Before I get to a life advice, I think I'll still do one um, here because it was the worst worst question I've ever been asked <laughs> on life advice. And I kind of want to I kind of want to give it uh, its due. But I'm not going to do a big uh, victory lap of the Rockets loss to the Lakers. Uh, look, almost all of us picked the Lakers, thought they were going to win. I just think it's it's just something to remind you. Like the next time Harden's putting up 35 a game and the Rockets are winning enough games and somebody's on TV talking about him and they're conveniently ignoring what we really see in front of our face and looking at some of the overall averages in the playoffs and some of the averages in elimination games and they're not seeing that there's just something wrong there. Um, just remember to not take that person seriously because they're either friends with Harden or they're connected to the Rockets somehow or whatever. But I mean, it's, it's just so bad and you can tell me how great his overall line is in game five, but did you watch the first quarter when they were immediately down 20 and they have no energy and there's just little things that Harden does that are so terrible. They're just terrible. Like there was a fast break where he had the deep guy to the right and he pointed him out with no one behind him because Harden just didn't feel like running with him. I mean, that's, that's bullshit stuff. So look, I'm not going to do like this, this debate, the Westbrook debate has been done for years. The Harden debate, I think has been done. I think the Harden debate kind of was put to bed last year when Steph dropped 30 plus in the second half and Houston couldn't win at home with no Durant. So, uh, that's why I say these things to you guys on the podcast, because I believe in them. And I think the track record over the long term, when you're like, ah, I think this player is this, and I think this player is a little limited here and you know, you never know. Like somebody can eventually hook up with someone else and do it. I can't. The most interesting thing in the Harden thing isn't to constantly point out like, hey, guys, something's wrong there. Like something's wrong with him. I mean, and by the way, game four was atrocious, yet he took 20 free throws and he's just not built for it. You know, this whole we're built for this, we're built different and all this says Harden's not built for it. And I don't know how much more evidence you need to see to realize this. And it'll all go away. Like all of this, that's the great thing about time moving and sports is that Harden's going to have another unbelievable stretch. But when you start arguing about him perhaps being one of the greatest, as Daryl Morey said, the greatest offensive player of all time, you're like, yeah, it's also system usage and kind of bullshit, like 25% bullshit. So that's, I don't know how anybody argues against that stuff anymore. And people like writing articles that like him not moving in the offense is good. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I, I, again, time and time again. And the, and the thing that was funny about Houston, too, is like their defense wasn't really the issue until they were going to play the same team again over and over and over again. And a team that actually the debate of should the Lakers go big, should they go small? It's just, look, Davis and LeBron are, are that much better than what, you know, Harden and then the disaster this Westbrook. Uh, and Westbrook right now is a disaster, but he put a ton of energy making sure Rondo's brother got thrown out of a game because, um, that's kind of what Russ is about. So we already know how I feel about Houston. I'm not going to keep doing it over and over again. And I, I just, you know, you're not going to hear a lot from Houston people because it's, it's painfully obvious. However, you're going to hear a lot from Toronto people. And I don't know that I've, I've ever, you know, I'll mention like, Hey, you know, so-and-so was arguing this, or this was something people didn't like that I said and all this different stuff. And, um, what happened with Toronto Raptors fans over the weekend, Friday into Saturday is the most disgusting ridiculous line crossing stuff I've ever experienced with any fan base and being on the air 18 years. It's not even whatever their line was uh, of like, Hey, that's kind of crossing the line. Raptors fans shattered it face first. So I want to back up and explain the dynamic of going back and forth. Now I'm really happy about what I got to do in my career 
And I also understand what I was like as somebody that consumed a ton of sports talk radio and watched every single show and watched a million games. And I used to think there was far more guys that did the job that sucked than guys that I actually liked. And it's a thing that's deep down where I think if you really love sports, you look at anybody that does this for a living and you're like, I could do that. And my thing would be, yeah, you probably could, but you didn't. So what are we talking about here? And when I was early on in my career and somebody would say, oh, you're so lucky. I'd be like, yeah, there's part of that. But then I would explain to somebody else, well, how'd you do it? I'm like, well, I haven't taken a weekend off in like three years. I made 12 grand, 26 grand, 26 grand, 34 grand, and like 38 or 43 grand in the last year. And then I was into my thirties. I drive back and forth from Boston to Bristol for the first three years of my time at ESPN. And I get back to Boston at like four in the morning because they wouldn't pick up my hotel um, until later on. And, you know, I would explain these things, be like, I'm not married. I don't have a girlfriend because I don't want anybody to tell me that like, oh, we had plans this weekend when I know I have to say yes to that shift. Although, you know, the other big secret about these careers is that nobody really keeps track of you working all those terrible, terrible shifts as much as you think they should or think that they will. They don't. If you're good, you're going to get paid. If you're not, you're not going to get paid. All right. So whenever anybody goes like, oh, you know, I would have loved to have done that. And then I explain what I've done. They go, that kind of sucks. Like, yeah, it really, really sucked. So whatever level of fame that I have that's very minor uh, in, in the grand scheme of things, like it's not like I'm a cool athlete, uh, which is far cooler than anything I've ever done, or like somebody who's like created something great, you know, great actor, actress, uh, a great screenplay, you know, a screenwriter. Um, you know, that's the kind of stuff where I think it's really cool. So I'll even admit sometimes, like you spent your entire life talking about people that do things way better than you how, how great is that? But whatever it is, it's, uh, it's, it's better than working for a living, but there will always be a divide, a resentment between the people that consume this stuff. And then the people that do it, because back to the beginning of this whole point was that a lot of you listen to me do this going, I could have done this. Like where'd he go? Vermont. He didn't go to Yale. You know, he's not that smart. Oh, cool. He read another history book. And he's going to tell us about like this fucking guy, like, give me a break. And by the way, the language is probably going to get pretty vicious here. So earmuffs. But I look at the person that kind of looks at me with some contempt and says, yeah, but you, you made a decision early on where whatever I had to do was something you weren't going to do. And yes, we can get into levels of talent and like some people just sort of have it, some people don't, but there's plenty of people that just grinded and grinded and grinded. They're not the most talented. They don't have the best voice. They don't have all the instincts of timing in their head. Maybe they're not the greatest at making all these analogies, but they still found a way to carve out some sort of career. And I'm sure there are plenty of local guys that do what I do. And I started local that look at me and are like, ah, he's not that good because you've been in local for 20 years and you have some animosity towards me that I was national for 14 years at ESPN. So that is always going to exist. That's never going to go away. Maybe the resentment that some of you even have when you watch an athlete holding out and you're mad because you were good at sports once, or when you look at an actor and hear about how much she or she makes and you think, well, that's ridiculous. Now, again, that doesn't happen as much. There's more animosity towards athletes than there are actors. There's certainly not nearly enough animosity against CEOs and heads of companies and how they can screw over tons of stockholders and then empty out the uh, cash reserves on their way out to getting fired. I mean, that shit's way, way worse, but we're not keeping track of it every Sunday for 10 hours like we do football. So when I say something you don't like, that contempt is only amplified because then it's like, wait, this, this guy said something about something that I like, and now I'm really pissed off. And sometimes I'll say stuff, and like I just did with the Rockets. Like I've, I've already done this where I go, hey, you know, I don't like the Rockets. I'm going to root against them. I hope they lose because I can't stand the style, and I'm just sick of hearing about these guys all the time. All right, done and done. And that was after I'd watched them way too many times. I'm like, why do I keep watching the Rockets? I already know what's going to happen. And plenty of Houston people, 
people online were coming at me and I like, I got it. I was like, whatever. I just said, I want your team to lose all the time. If I were you, I would be mad at me too. Very easy, very easy. But with Toronto, going back to last week's pod, I said something that I actually think is so not aggressive that it's unbelievable to me that Raptors fans took it to this, this level. And I'm going to share some of that stuff with you here very shortly. I said, I don't think Lowry's a hall of famer, by the way, he's going to get into the hall of fame. Okay. He's going to get into the Hall of Fame because everybody gets in the Basketball Hall of Fame. I personally think the standards should be higher. The thresholds should be higher, however you want to phrase it. And I look at some players going like, if you're not really considered one of the best of your position over a good chunk of your career, I don't think you should be in the Hall of Fame. I just don't. But everybody gets in the Basketball Hall of Fame. Lowry's going to get in. He's got the ring. But if he didn't have the ring, I don't even know that people would even be bringing it up right now because there's plenty of basketball writers like, oh, yeah, hey, wait, like he might be a Hall of Famer. So that was my point. I said, you know, I wouldn't have him in. And if it weren't for Kawhi, I don't think we'd even be talking about it. So a couple places up in Toronto, those friendly, jovial Canadians who we always think, oh, the Canadians, they're so nice. Um, They posted a bunch of different media outlets up there. And that led to, and I don't know if it's an orchestrated thing, but an absolute barrage of insults, slurs, racial, homophobic, um, and threats. And then it went way too far. We started making fun of a one-year-old niece and another friend of mine, you know, another friend's son. Because I take a lot of pictures on Instagram. My whole Instagram thing is a joke, basically kind of making fun of Instagram. But despite not having kids, I do really like kids. So that's kind of the joke where I'll take a picture with a little kid. I'll be like, hey, now I know what it all means. But Raptors fans thought it was cool to make incredibly disgusting remarks about kids. I've gotten over thousands of DMs and comments. And the threats are nothing because let's face it, if most of you saw me, not like I'm some badass, but you would just go, oh, hey, love the pod. You wouldn't do shit. So the threats I can handle. The insults I can handle. Hey, white boy stick to hockey is actually kind of funny because I never talk hockey. Um, and it was everyone. But it's nothing. I've never experienced anything in 18 years of being on the air that even matches the venom. The I, I don't even know how to explain it. Like I could read a bunch of them. Hey, go die. All right, fine. I hope your dog dies. Fine. Um you know, I, I've gotten called a million things. I remember getting into it with Ohio State fans at one point. And Ohio State fans, I actually kind of sided with early on because like, wait, we get blown out in two national championships and no other teams are playing in these games and we're losers. No, I had Kentucky fans coming after me when I said, hey, you can have that team. And then they made a run and lost to UConn in the national final, which was crazy for that basketball team because I felt like they were totally underwhelming. And then they put it together in the tournament to the point where I was on a vacation after that title game and Kentucky fans, they were writing, not Kentucky fans, Kentucky media members wrote that I had to take a leave of absence to deal with Kentucky success in that run. I was like, all right, yeah, that's the dumbest thing ever. I had a vacation booked. Uh, Mississippi State fans weirdly got into it with me one time when we said we weren't bringing game day there, which was kind of nasty. So the threats, that's all part of it. Uh, most everybody gets made fun of. I've actually, throughout the course of my career, you know, avoided, because you guys know I'm not a dick. Like, I'm not a dick. I'm not trying to be a dick about any of this stuff. But Toronto fans, and it's not all Toronto fans, but for, unfortunately for now, that's how I'm always going to look at that city, that you guys crossed a line and made suggestive things about kids, and you thought it was funny, and then you guys kept liking it all, and then you were DMing me stuff, saying you were going to do stuff to my family. And unfortunately, then I have family members that are like, what the hell, because they don't understand this. They're not used to it. I think I'm pretty numb to it, but I just want to share this, because I want people to understand that Toronto fans, Raptor fans forever for me now will be the worst fans of any major sport in any city, college, anything from now on, I'll never look at you the same. And I know it's not all of you, but I don't really give a shit. You want details? Fine. I drive a Ferrari 355 Cabriolet. What's up? 
I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. Life advice. You can email us, lifeadvicerr at gmail.com. I have this one because I thought it was urgent. I will do a bigger one uh, later in the week. By the way, new schedule is new again because we got game seven. I don't know what to tell you about the Clippers right now. When they put up the graphic and say it's been 50 years, they haven't made a conference finals. I can't believe it. That's some weird Babe Ruth curse stuff going on right there with that team. Um, so I'm not going to break down. I got to go back and watch because it was happening during football. So I, I don't feel comfortable telling you. Like I could just fake it and whatever. But Bill and I are going to be doing a Tuesday night pod. So that's going to be after game seven. So whatever that game seven is, Bill and I will be doing the pod immediately after. It's going to come out Tuesday night, you know, a little earlier, obviously, in the West Coast because that's how time works. So it was really important that I told you how time zones work. If you haven't figured that out at this point, I don't even know how you get to this podcast. So uh, that was a little bit too much information and almost insulting that you didn't know that. So, um, that's what we're going to do. So, yeah, Kyle, Bill and I are taping on Tuesdays, but normally now through this football basketball overlap, we were going to be Thursday. So that's why there was no Sunday. Right. And that means I'm going to be Wednesday then. So you're going to get me three days in a row, I think. Or I'll do Thursday. I don't know. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. We will figure it out. I could probably go look at the text while I'm on. So why don't we do that? Why don't we do that? Okay, Tuesday night. Okay, so I'm going to do... Monday, which is now, and then I'm going to do Thursday. All right. So that way I won't be three days in a row and that's good. It'll break it up a little bit. Okay. All right. Again, life advice, rr at gmail.com. Ryan, longtime uh, fan and a fellow writer. Huh. All right, man. Good company. I'm 28, recently married, living in an apartment in Pasadena, California. My wife and I want to buy a house in the next couple of years, but the Southern California housing market, as you know, a little out of hand. It is out of hand. Man, is it ever. Even in Pasadena? Yeah, Pasadena. A lot of people I'm like kidding, Pasadena. I'm kidding. I like Pasadena. Okay. I don't think you like Pasadena. I think you realize you insulted. I went there. I worked the uh, NAACP awards there. I liked it. You did? What were you, security? Yeah, had to take it. Uh, wow. No, uh, I was the guy that put all those hedges together, you know, when they uh, they make those walls out of nowhere for the walk and repeat. That was me. I actually enjoyed it. Had to take an Uber, $50 each way. Wait, so you were doing physical outside. Was that because of your parks and rec background that they trusted you with the hedge? <laughs> <laughs> was that how did you get no, that gig after after bill's show went under uh the the person who uh was like the director of the the uh what is it line producer she was like hooked up with that and she hit me up i was a good worker and they gave me the option to do a bunch of stuff and i was like you know i'm not really interested in getting coffee can i move those that guy looks fun big like uh eastern european guy just me and him were just you know dragging hand trucks around it was a good time pasadena nice convention center the big guys always get any of those deals. When you're the bigger guy, you always get screwed on on the deal. Um, I kind of like that work. I got to be honest with you. Go at your own pace. Go at your own pace was the first thing you said. Not that you're outdoors. Not that you're working in your hands. Working with manual labor. It was that I basically didn't have to do a ton because there was so much other chaotic, more important stuff going on. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. Okay. All right. Damn, I just do real life advice. My bad. No, no, you didn't. I asked you about your clarification on Pasadena. Uh, I've been up there. I would not pick it to live uh, as far as the the outer Los Angeles towns, but some people really like Pasadena. I think it's a little older. Um, so 28. So that's why my man probably wants to get out of there. Okay. All right. All things being equal, we're looking at the usual out-of-state cities to relocate when the time comes. Seattle, Austin, Denver, Boston, Seattle had been the favorite, but my wife has always wanted to live on the East Coast. And will Hartford and New Haven have come up? 
Uh, (laughs) This is why we had to get to this one immediately. I'm going to just finish reading the email. (laughs) I've obviously researched both places online, but there are obvious limitations to that. People say it's expensive with high property taxes being cited frequently, but I don't know. Maybe it's the fact that I'm jaded from California's high cost of living. So the housing prices seem incredibly cheap by comparison. What do you think about the potential move? We're not into the crazy nightlife scene, but we do enjoy going out to dinner together and having a couple of drinks in a nice ish uh, bars. I'm a big sports guy, but the internet is a thing. Is the weather the big, big of a factor? We hate the summers here. Okay. I know you're from the area, so I figure I get your perspective. Thanks in advance. Love the show. Okay. All right. A couple of things. Alex, this is the worst fucking idea I've heard of any of the emails <laughs> that we've been given. You just went from, I'm thinking Seattle, Austin, Denver, Boston. Seattle uh, has been his favorite. And then he threw out Hartford and New Haven. Okay. I'm allowed to say this because I'm, uh, I was born in Hartford. Okay. And then I actually lived at downtown Hartford. For a couple of years. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't have a terrible time. And I actually like West Hartford. Um, but don't move there. <laughs> it's just, I don't know what to tell you. Like, I'm, I'm trying not to be really mean here. But there's like one street in Hartford. And like, dude, one time I came back from a Sunday flight and game day. And I was kind of over the Hartford thing already. And I pulled up and there was an actual parade going on. And there were no people. It was like a horror movie scene. No one was there. Like no one really lives in downtown Hartford. Now, West Hartford, if you want to get a little place with walking distance into the the center, it's terrific. New Haven isn't that great either. It just isn't. I wouldn't want to live there either. So just don't do this stuff. And as far as the tax thing, it's the real thing. It's local tax decisions. Okay. Your local tax decisions in Connecticut, for a bunch of different reasons, has decided to just tax the hell out of people that have property value. So what happens is, is once you buy a home, let's say you're a $500,000 home, say your mortgage is, you know, whatever the note is, if there's an HOA insurance and all these different things, let's say it's around $3,000 a month. Okay, you're fine. And so what's your property taxes on that? All right, well, 500,000 property taxes in most places would be maybe 10 to $12,000 a year. And then you go, and granted, the property tax thing is is different in every single state, but then your local politicians decide, oh, no, wait, why don't we just do this? Anybody that like has higher end, which it, the higher end is its own moving definition all the time. And I'm giving you a bit of a tax lesson here, but I'm also admitting, like, I wish I had done this before, is that, like, think about, think about this young couple here. They're almost 30. And young people are getting absolutely screwed with these student loans and the cost of attendance that schools just keep jacking up and up and up. And then this deal where you're having schools invite students back and then getting their money, getting all the costs, and then saying, I actually go back and do it online. It reminds me of like a Red Sox rain delay where they would make sure everybody paid for parking, make sure everybody bought food, bought beer, sat down in their seats. And then like at 7.15, 10 minutes after the first pitch, they call it after everybody spent all of that fucking money. And it's dirty. And it's dirty. The schools do it. And I feel terrible for younger people right now where like the rest of us came out of school i had like 40 grand in debt and it took me forever to pay it off um but it was just kind of accepted you guys like it's accepted that you're supposed to just take on like a hundred thousand plus worth of debt and now you're supposed to buy a house so say the house and i'm just going here because it'll make sense in the end here or maybe you guys have already checked out like hey when's dilfer back on um you want to buy a house, right? You want to start a family. You're, you're late twenties, early thirties. You know, most people aren't crushing it and making over six figures. And then sometimes depending on what your tax situation is, you know, a hundred thousand, two kids, it, depending on what you're schooling, you know, all these, these numbers, like the stuff adds up. So if you're saving a hundred grand to do the 20% down, um, that's kind of where you'd be at. All right. So 20% down, first time homeowner, 
there's a bunch of different products out there as far as the mortgage and all this stuff. But if you do the 30 year, which most people don't really, well, I don't want to say most people, but we grew up, at least my parents' generation grew up understanding, hey, 30 year, you do your money down 30 year, and then that's your retirement nut at 65 or 60 if you sell your house. And then you can either go to Florida and spend it all, or you can give it to your kids, right? That was kind of the, the baseline plan. But now people don't do that anymore because the mortgage companies and the banks want to have more products so that you're actually changing over your loan more often so they have more products to sell you. And it's something that blew my mind when I moved to Southern California that I'm like, why would anyone do interest only and not pay any principal down? Like I'd done principal-based loans back in the East Coast. I'm like, now I'm doing like one interest only. And I thought it was like the dumbest idea ever when it was first pitched to me. But then you start looking at appreciation and you go, okay, that's the play is that it's less money out each month. It's still the same money down but less money in. So these people can kind of live above their means a little bit. And then you bank on if you're buying houses in nice areas that it's going to be worth a little bit more. But again, the scary part is when the housing collapsed because everybody got approved for a loan with no credit and no work history, because then everybody somehow is going to be in a house, which oh no way like that didn't work. I mean, it's so stupid that we didn't see it coming, but we didn't. And you're like, wait, everyone got approved for a mortgage that shouldn't have. And then the banks failed. That's weird. Okay. But that's exactly what happened. Um, but it's because there were just so many different products. Now, look, you can't, the, the rates have been low for a while. Uh, the products are a bunch of different things. But back to our guy here and why the property tax thing really is so important. So say, say it takes you, I don't know, five years to put away 20 grand every year, you and your wife. Like that's hard to do. It's hard to say that discipline, but that's what you're going to have to do. So then you save that hundred grand. So you feel like you have your 20% down payment on the $500,000 house, but then you also have to have enough reserves to carry a payment for like 12 months. So that's really on the discretion of the lender. Sometimes you can mess with that a little bit. Sometimes you can't. Um, so say you needed to carry 12 months of payments. Some places are going to want 24 months of play payments. They're probably going to want to see like another 50 grand in cash in some other account. So just so they don't give you keys to a house, and they take your hundred grand down and you buy whatever mortgage product and then it's gone. But then what happens in the middle or a year or two after that purchase, the property taxes get cranked up, which is exactly what happened in Connecticut. And that's why everybody that had a high-end house, their house is now worth 30% less. So I don't think it's selfish to worry about that for voting locally. I don't think it's the wrong thing to go, oh, sweet, my life savings to this point, and I want to start a family. I did the right thing. I saved. I put my 20% down on the house. I've had good credit. I've made all the right decisions in the seven years it takes to clear out any bad decisions in my credit history. And now the town or the state that I lived in totally jacked up the property taxes because they needed somebody to cover a bill that they screwed up for years of bad decisions. Like, I really don't think that that's, I don't know how that's, that's deemed as like an asshole way to look at things. Like to me, that's a real way to look at things. And it doesn't diminish the other things that are non-economic with worrying about who's representing, whether it's your state, your town or your country. So uh, that's, that's the thing with Connecticut where you know, it sucks. It sucks when you save and then you do the things the right way. And then you're like, oh, by the way, because of these taxes, now your house is worth less seven years later than when you bought it. You are like, oh, okay. Now don't cry for me, but I'm just saying like the regular guy, like I have a lot of friends that that happened to. And it's like, New York's like that too. Yeah. So the, the longest answer ever to what could have been a very short answer would be, no, don't go buy a house in Hartford. There's not that many restaurants either. That's life advice. All right. We'll check in Tuesday night, Bill and I, and then uh, Thursday, I'll be back with uh, a couple of different plans that are in the works, but we have a really good guest list coming up this first month of the season. And please subscribe, rate, and review to the Ryan Russell podcast. <laughs>